0: Uh, Ask my sister Asha about how she became a Christian, and she would tell you a great story. She would tell you that when she was just young, still just a girl, God was doing something in her heart through some experiences and people and drawing her heart to himself. And so one day, she came to her older brother, that's your pastor, that's me, who himself had just started following Jesus recently, and she asked this great, most amazing question. She asked, How do I become a Christian? right? Now, if you're a Christian in the room, you know this is the question of all questions. This is the question you're waiting for, you're hoping your sibling asks, your spouse asks, your children ask, neighbor, friend, whoever asks. This is the perfect question, and, and could it get any easier than that? And So she came, your baby sister comes to you and asks you, essentially, how do I get forgiven of my sins? How do I trust in Jesus? How do I become a follower? How do I get the hope of heaven? And so here's basically what she says my exact words were. I said to her, I don't know, go pray or something, and essentially told her to go talk to someone else, right? Said, Maro, that's your pastor, just so that you know. Uh, That was not, needless to say, my finest moment, and I've come to see that it goes without saying, I've never been very good at one-on-one evangelism. I can sort of stand here and talk to a room of 40 people, but one-on-one, I've never been very gifted at. And in fact, I'm always amazed at the people who are gifted at evangelism, right? You, you can imagine the type. You go out to them with them to lunch. The waiter comes and says something like, would you like some more water? You say no, and this person says, no, but would you like to have the living water? right? Can I tell you about Jesus? And you're sitting there going, that is such a cheesy line, that's never going to work. Next thing you know, the baptism is happening with your cup of water over this waiter, right? That's how it happens for some, never for me. And I imagine, probably not for many of you as well. In fact, I imagine that some of you, perhaps many of you would say, look, I really do believe in Jesus. I do love Jesus. I want to follow Jesus. But I don't know how to do that, how to be a witness for Jesus. And then we'd say, I want to be a witness for Jesus, but, and then after that but would come a whole host of reasons. If you're honest, reasons like, I don't know how to start. I don't know what to say. What if they ask a question that I don't know the answer to? I'm afraid. I'm afraid I don't know my Bible well enough, or I'm afraid of what they'll think of me after. And on and on and on it would go. And I would simply say to you, trust me, I get it. And if that's you, and I suspect that's a lot of us, then I want to suggest to you that this passage in Acts 8, in verses 26 to 40, can help us because I think this passage is full of hope and encouragement for bad evangelists. If you're bad at evangelism, like I am, then this passage is full of hope and encouragement for you. And I want to say to you, Seven Mile Road, we are not particularly gifted at evangelism. That's not a put down, that's just the reality. We've talked to our members and said any of the church growth we've been seeing as of late is more folks who know Jesus and are finding us as opposed to people who are discovering Jesus for the first time. And so perhaps what we can do is if you're here and you love Jesus, but you can't remember the last time you told someone else about him, you're here and you love Jesus but you can't remember the last time you told someone who doesn't know him about him then may I encourage you today don't listen now for a decent sermon instead lean in press in with a certain hunger and desperation that says Lord today and now through this passage you have to do something in my heart you have to change something about me admit to God your need for his help And plead with God to use this passage on this particular Sunday to do something for you. And if you're here and you're not a follower of Christ, I want to say something to you as well, which is that I think even for you, this passage is full of hope and encouragement because I think this passage will show you of the great lengths in which God is willing to go to even reach just one person with his love and with the good news of his son Jesus the great lengths at which God is willing to go to reach even one person with his love, with his good news. And may I encourage you that that someone could be even someone like you, even someday like today. So I'd encourage you, listen, open to the possibility of something unexpected and new happening in your life. Maybe even open to the possibility that if there is a God in this planet of 7.6 billion people, This God might actually know about you, care about you, so much so as to arrange that he has brought you this particular moment to this particular place for this particular reason. Because he happens to be the kind of God that will go through any length just to reach one person. And maybe you would be open to the possibility that you would see that from this passage as well. So Let's do that together. Let's plead to the Lord and ask him to use this passage and then we'll consider it together. Would you pray with me and let's admit and ask God for help. Father, we look to you even as our eyes look to the page and look to these words and we pray for your help. We pray that those of us who know you would be helped by you so that we might be what Jesus commanded us to be, witnesses of yours to all peoples To the ends of the earth. We pray that your spirit might come and open our eyes to this word and we pray for others of us, all of us, that we might even today come to see of your great love and the lengths you'll go to reach each and every one of us. Come bring life and light to this word that it might not just fall on our ears but go past them to our hearts and take root in our lives and we might do what this passage says. We ask and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Here's how this great story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch starts. It's Acts chapter 8. Uh, This was the passage that was just read for us, page 917 in the Black Bibles in the seat back in front of you. Acts 8 verse 26 is where the story starts. Here's how it starts. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And beginning of twenty-seven, and he rose and went. I guess one thing right off the bat that I'd say as a hope and encouragement for people who are not very good at evangelism is this: is that Jesus uses ordinary Christians to be his witnesses. Hear that again. Jesus uses ordinary Christians to be his witnesses. Now please do me a favor, don't just listen to that and let it sort of float over you. Ask for grace in your heart to actually believe that that's true right now. Ask for grace to believe that one of the hopes and encouragements of this passage is that Jesus uses ordinary Christians to be his witness. If you're sitting here and you would say of yourself, I'm just an ordinary Christian, well then you happen to be in luck Because it just so happens that ordinary Christians are exactly who Jesus intends to use to be his witnesses. That's what we see in this story, right? We see Philip, and we said this last week, but let's say it again. Philip is not one of the 12 disciples. Philip is not an apostle. That means on a Sunday morning at church, you would have found Philip sitting right next to you. He was just an ordinary person in the pews, an ordinary Christian. Philip didn't go to seminary. Philip didn't have a theology degree. Philip didn't have initials before or after his name. He wasn't Reverend Philip. He wasn't Pastor Philip. He wasn't Philip PhD. In fact, all Philip had is exactly what you had. He had a Bible. He had faith in Christ and love and the Holy Spirit. That's all he had, and that's all you have. You have a Bible, and you have faith in Christ, and you have the Holy Spirit. You have exactly what Philip has. Ordinary person in the pews, Philip. And consider with me how Jesus uses Philip then. Philip is called by the Lord through an angel in verse 26, and through the Holy Spirit in verse 29, to rise, to go, essentially to share the gospel with one man. One Ethiopian man. Now I'm getting ahead of myself, but I want you to hear that history suggests to us that what happens because of this one encounter, because of ordinary person in the pews, Philip, meeting this one man in the desert, what happens as a result of this is that through this, the gospel will reach the continent of Africa. Would you hear that? And don't miss that. Through this, the continent of Africa would have its first witness for Jesus Christ. That means the continent of Africa got its first exposure to the good news of Jesus Christ, not through one of the apostles, not through one of the disciples. It wasn't through Peter or Paul. It wasn't through Thomas or Matthew. But person in the pews, Philip, is who Jesus used so that Africa might hear the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, having said that, would you let me take a two-minute tangent. A two-minute tangent because one of the barriers for Christianity among certain ethnicities, certain minorities, is that Christianity is viewed essentially as a Western import. Right? My parents come from India. Often what's said in objection to Christianity in India is that is a Western religion. Likewise, in other places as well, in places like Africa, it would be said, look, this didn't grow in the soil of Africa, but was rather imported later from the West. And so I've heard African-American black Christians say that one of the objections that they will frequently hear from others is that Christianity is essentially the white man's religion. It's a western import. Its roots only go far as back as slavery, and it was sort of slaves who were forced and coerced to accept the religion of their masters. And so this is the argument that's used against Christianity. And yet, one of the things that we can be thankful to God for and praise the Lord for in our day is that there is a host of African-American pastors and Christian leaders who are rightly correcting that fallacy, and doing so by pointing to passages like this one in Acts 8, and saying to the world, look, the roots of African Christianity are much deeper, and much older, and much longer than the transatlantic slave trade. In fact, brothers and sisters, would you consider, if you consider the chronology of events in Acts, then Acts would suggest to us that the good news of Jesus arrived in Africa through Philip and this man in Acts 8, even before it arrived in Europe through Paul in Acts 16. Did you guess that? The chronology of Acts would suggest to us that the good news of Jesus reached Africa through this encounter in Acts 8, even before it got to Europe through Paul in Acts 16. It's a beautiful thing. I want to read you a quote from Pastor Ernie, who is from Epiphany Camden, one of our friends and partners in ministry. And this is what Pastor Ernie said. He said, the first time that blacks heard the liberating gospel of Jesus was not on the plantations of southern states, but as free men and women on the vast, expansive continent of Africa. That's beautiful. It's beautiful because it means this was not some Western import but that Christianity in that part of the world had long and deep and old and ancient roots, that that from the beginning itself, Jesus had the continent of Africa in mind. And moreover, history would bear witness to us that that's exactly true, that this isn't some import coming post-slave trade. In fact, history would tell us that some of the most important And influential and key Christian leaders, thinkers, theologians, and pastors were African Christians. For example, when you go home today, Google Tertullian. And when you read of Tertullian, you'll read of a man born in Tunisia who defended the Christian faith. In fact, his reading of the scriptures made him coin a word in Latin, Trinitas. And you can imagine the word we get from it. So if you've ever used the word Trinity to describe the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, you have an African church father to thank for that word. Or when you go home, Google Athanasius, Athanasius of Alexandria, and you'll see a man who fought for Christianity, defended the truth that Jesus was fully God and fully man at the same time. In fact, if just a few moments ago you confessed with us in the Nicene Creed Jesus is of one substance with the Father, then you're borrowing words that Athanasius gave us. In fact, every time we recite that creed to us, that African church father gave us those words in which we could articulate this most beautiful truth about Jesus Christ. Or then you could read about Augustine. Augustine, it said, after Jesus and Paul, nobody has influenced the Christian history of the world like Augustine a North African father. You could keep going on and on, but here'd be the point. The point is, against the fallacy that says that this is somehow a Western or Anglo or European religion, black Christians, African-American Christians, African Christians could say with David in Psalm 61, you have given us a heritage of those who fear your name. It's a beautiful thing to be able to confess. You have given us old, deep, long, ancient roots and a heritage of those who fear your name. You see, this passage is telling us that Christianity isn't some modern invention or a Western import, but rather Jesus said in Acts 1.8, You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And as an Indian, I'd say, thank God he had Thomas in mind to send him in 52 AD to India, that that was part of the Indian, the ends of the earth. And I would say that every other person would say, thank God also that he had Philip in mind to send him to this place, to meet a man, so that Africa was part of what Jesus had in view in Acts 1-8 as well. And so he sends Philip. And where does he send him? Verse 26 tells us what? He sends him to a desert place. Translation, essentially, to the middle of nowhere. He takes Philip and sends him to the middle of nowhere. To be more precise, Philip is sent about 165 miles south of Jerusalem, halfway between Africa and Israel, to the middle of nowhere. And mind you, when does this call come? Remember what we looked at last week at the beginning of Acts 8? This comes when Philip's ministry in Samaria is busting at the seams. It comes when Samaria, by droves and crowds and multitudes, are coming to Jesus. In Samaria, the gospel is exploding. There's huge crowds. There's signs and wonders. There's lots of people, thousands of them, coming to Christ. And in the middle of all that gospel frenzy... Jesus calls Philip and plucks him out and takes him and drops him 165 miles south, halfway between Israel and Africa, in the middle of nowhere. Why? Why? Because of the second great hope and encouragement that this passage gives us, which is that Jesus will go to great lengths for even one person to come to him. Now hear me. Don't just let that one fly over your head either, but ask God for grace to believe that in your heart right now, that Jesus will go to great lengths to arrange for even one person to come to him. See, till now, as we've been studying Acts, the good news of Jesus to this point has been shared to the multitudes. So whole regions, whole cities are getting the gospel. Jerusalem, 3,000 people in one sermon. Samaria, the whole region is coming to the Lord. But now, Dr. Luke is going to slow Acts down. Because in the next three chapters, in Acts 8, in Acts 9, and in Acts 10, you're actually going to get three individual conversions. You're going from all Jerusalem and all Samaria to now, Acts 8, the Ethiopian eunuch. Acts 9, Saul of Tarsus. Acts 10, Cornelius the Gentile. And in each one of these, what we're beginning to see is Jesus loves us all, but Jesus loves us as individuals. And that Jesus will go to great lengths for each and every one of us to come to him. Would you hear that? If you're here today and you're a Christian, Hear me, your story and mine and the details of them differ. The details of your story coming to Christ and my story coming to Christ differ. But there is a common thread in both. It's that behind all that, Jesus was at work. He was at work arranging the exact places and people and moments in your story. He was at work arranging the exact people and places and moments in my story to draw each and every one of us to himself. It's good news if you let it sink into your soul, that Jesus loves us, yes, but even sweeter still to you, Jesus loves you, brother. Jesus loves you, sister. Jesus loves the world, yes, but Jesus loves me, is sweeter still. That Jesus would travel a great length, not just send others to travel great length, but he himself would cross the distance from heaven to earth for us, yes, is good news. For you, brother, for you, sister, is even sweeter still. So that if you were in the middle of the desert, 165 miles south, halfway between Israel and Africa, he would have sent someone for you. That you matter to him like that. And here's this man that Jesus loved to such great lengths that he plucks Philip out of the middle of a vibrant and bustling and busy ministry with thousands of people coming in Samaria and puts him in the middle of nowhere to meet one solitary man. such is the love of Jesus. And I have to think, I'm just imagining in my own mind, that when the Ethiopian finally got home, And when he started telling his friends and his neighbors about what had happened to him in the desert, would not his heart bubble within him as he begins to think the lengths Jesus went just to find him in the middle of nowhere, that he might experience the love and grace and inclusion of God. And who is this man that Jesus so loves? Verse 27, we meet him. Philip rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian... A eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. That is, that in the most unlikely place, God had been preparing the most unlikely man for this most unlikely encounter. Right? In the most unlikely place, this most unlikely man has this most unlikely encounter. What do we know about him? Already we've said back and forth, we know he's Ethiopian. Beyond that, we're also told that he's a eunuch. Now back in that day, in order to work with and for the queen, what they would do to make sure that there would be no betrayal, no violating of the queen, is they would essentially castrate you. And so in order for this job, this man perhaps voluntarily was castrated to work for the queen. That's all I have to say about that. If you have more questions, you can talk to Binur sibi in the back, okay? So he's a government official who works for the queen. Moreover, he's high ranking. He is in charge of all the queen's treasure. So would you build with me for a moment the profile of this man? Here is this man of power and influence, and position, and title, and status, next to the queen, with all this wealth. And yet, despite all the things that he has in life, in power, prestige, influence, title, status, all that, somehow, his heart is not satisfied. And perhaps you can relate. Perhaps you're here knowing that everything should be right in your world, but something is deeply unsettled. Could it be that hovering over your soul is Jesus Christ, even as he was hovering over this man's soul. God is clearly doing something in this man's life because, mind you, there is no shortage of gods or religion in Africa. There's no shortage of gods to worship or religion in Africa, and yet this man gets up from Ethiopia, travels a thousand miles north from Africa to come to Israel to worship Yahweh, the God of the people of Israel. And could you in your mind's eye picture this African man in the temple courts in Jerusalem? Could you see him? You wonder to yourself almost how far could he have possibly gotten. For one, he's a foreigner. He's not part of God's covenant people. And so perhaps the the furthest in he could get was the outer court of the Gentiles. But moreover, he's not just Ethiopian. He's not just a foreigner. He's a eunuch. For the sake of time, I won't take you there, but you can go to Deuteronomy 23 verse 1 and you would read that in God's law there was a specific command that that, a man that had this happen to him, a eunuch, was not allowed in the assembly of God's people. So how far could he have gotten in? He's an Ethiopian and more than that, he's a eunuch who is not allowed, permitted by the law, to assemble with God's people, and yet he's traveled a thousand miles to get to Jerusalem. Isn't it clear that this man is seeking God? But isn't it more clear, friends, that God is seeking him? That God had caused something to bubble up in his soul while he was sitting in Africa, surrounded by wealth and power and everything else. That God had caused this man to be so dissatisfied that he'd travel a thousand miles to Jerusalem. And God is seeking this man to the point that now he sent Philip to meet him. Verse 29. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, How can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scriptures that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shears is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. Now pause there. I remember that when Pastor Binu preached on this passage some time ago, he asked, don't you all wish that evangelism was this easy, right, this straightforward? How often do you get an encounter that's this simple, this straightforward? Instead, ours seem much more complicated. I was talking to someone from here just a few weeks ago, and she was saying to me, I have this coworker that's starting to read the Bible, and he's got questions, and here's the question he hit me with this week. In Genesis, there's Adam, and there's Eve, and then there's Cain, and then there's Abel. Well, how does the whole world get populated? And where does Cain's wife come from? So now I got to have this conversation about maybe there was a sister and it was a long time ago and something else. And how come, how come I got a coworker with the mystery wife of Cain and Philip gets this, right? You want to go, it's no fair. I mean, did you hear the scene? The guy is literally reading his Bible going, oh, if someone would just explain this to me, right? How often does that happen for you? And moreover, think of the passage he's reading. Out of all the passages... He's not reading about Cain's wife. He's in Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53. And he begins to tell Philip, here's this passage. And what does the prophet Isaiah say in Isaiah 53? Isaiah 53, the prophet says, one day there's coming someone. And now tell me if you can connect the dots as to who this passage is about. One day there's coming someone, and he is going to be slaughtered. And this one that's coming is going to be led to his slaughter, but he's going to be like a sheep that's quiet and silent. He's going to be like a lamb that goes willingly, meaning he's not going to protest. He's not going to fight it. He's not going to resist it. He's not going to run away. He's going to willingly go along. In fact, he's not going to curse his killers. He's going to go with them. He's going to quietly go. And moreover, this person that's being slaughtered, moreover being humiliated, the prophet says, is being denied justice. He's being treated unjustly, meaning this person, whoever he is, is not a criminal getting what he deserves. He's actually someone innocent who's getting what he doesn't deserve. And so the man asked, tell me, who is the prophet speaking of when he says, there's somebody innocent who's willingly dying a death he doesn't deserve, but dies it like a lamb, like a sacrifice? Who is that about? And of course, Philip says what any of you would say. I mean, this is such a softball all over the plate, nice and easy, that you could take Philip's name out and put any of your names in. Then Jason opened his mouth. Then Liz opened her mouth and said, verse 35, beginning with the scriptures, he told them the good news about Jesus. Those dots were so easy to connect. Beginning with this passage, In Isaiah 53, he begins to tell him the good news of Jesus. You know what I love about this? We talked about this in our smaller community, in our GCM this week. Luke had told a very similar story like this already before. In fact, he told it in volume one of his two work volume. He told it in the Gospel according to Luke. He told a story that we in this church especially love. It's Luke 24, the story of the Emmaus Road, or as we've come to call it, the Seven Mile Road. And Luke told us in Volume 1 what? There was these folks traveling, and all of a sudden, a stranger comes. And the stranger begins to talk to these travelers. And in the conversation, he unfolds and opens the scriptures to them. And something starts happening in the hearer's hearts. And suddenly, as their hearts are coming to fire, this person disappears. And now Luke has Acts 8. And you know what he's saying? He's saying Philip did on this dusty road halfway between Israel and Africa exactly what Jesus did on the seven mile road. That Philip opened the scriptures, and catch this, when not one line of the New Testament had yet been written. When not one line of the New Testament had been written. He used the first half of his Bibles to tell him all the good news of Jesus. See, this is why we are gospel-centered in the way we read the Bible. This is why we're convinced the whole Bible is about Jesus. That the whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation is about Jesus because without one line in the New Testament, he begins to tell this man the good news of Jesus Christ. Could you picture in your mind them sort of bumpily going their way towards Africa? And Philip beginning to say, the prophet was talking about Jesus. And he begins to tell this man that Jesus is the one that Isaiah 53 says would have on him laid the iniquities of us all. That for our guilt he would be crushed. That he would be stricken and afflicted. He was a man acquainted with sorrows. That God cut him off from the land of the living for our sake. And he began to tell him, This Jesus is God in the flesh come down to this earth. And he tells them about Jesus' perfect life. And then he tells them how Jesus was led to his death. And he didn't protest. And he didn't revile. He didn't curse. In fact, he blessed his killers. This Jesus went down to his death saying, Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. And they buried this Jesus in the ground. And three days later, this Jesus came back from the dead. And Philip would say, I have friends who saw him with their eyes. You could talk to Peter, and you could talk to Thomas, and you could talk to Matthew. And Philip would say, this Jesus came alive, and he was going to ascend back to heaven. And before he did, Philip says to this Ethiopian, he told us his followers to go into the world and make disciples of all nations and to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and to teach them all that Jesus has obeyed and he is with us as we do this till the end of the ages. He told this man how Jesus had commanded, when you come to faith in Christ, we dunk you in the water so that you can be united in the death and burial and resurrection of Christ. So much so that verse 36 says, and as they were going along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said see here is water what prevents me from being baptized and he commanded the chariot to stop and they both went down into the water Philip and the eunuch and he baptized him So I wrote this summer we have a few people that are saying this same thing to us that are saying to us my heart is coming alive by this word saying to us, I hate now my sin, and I love Jesus Christ, and I want to be identified with Jesus in his life, in his death, in his burial, and his resurrection. And if Jesus says that what I should do is to be baptized, then where's the water? And what would keep me from being baptized? We thank the Lord that this summer we'll be able to do that. And if you're here and this is happening to your soul, that you're coming alive to the scriptures That your heart is burning as the scriptures are unfolded and Jesus is being presented. As you hate sin and love Christ, and you say, I want to follow him, I want to be united with him and his people, and where's the water? I too should get baptized. We would love for that to be your story as well. In GCM, we said, isn't it something? In the middle of the desert, with nothing but miles of sand everywhere, it just so happens that they come across some water. And you think of all the things that just so happened in this story. It just so happened that Philip ended up there. And it just so happened at just that moment the chariot came by. And it just so happened that God had been preparing this man's heart. And it just so happened out of all the places he was reading Isaiah 53. And it just so happened that when he was done, there was a pool of water. And none of this just so happened. None of this just so happened because Acts is what? Acts, the subtitle of our series is Acts of the Risen Jesus from Heaven. Through his spirit-filled disciples on earth, Jesus is acting here. And he has been arranging all the details of the story for this beautiful moment. Listen, evangelism will not be this easy for you, I know. But it's not even this easy in the rest of Acts. But this story, Luke is trying to tell us, do you see the great lengths in which Jesus is willing to go to reach even just one person? So brother or sister at Seven Mile Road, can I ask you, who knows, who knows whom Jesus is preparing right around you even now? Who knows what family member, what relative, what cousin, what sibling, who knows what person Jesus is working on and preparing for you and that person to encounter in a moment like this? Who knows what coworker has just been assigned to your office and for what purpose? Who knows who has just moved into your neighborhood because Jesus intends for the two of you to meet? Who knows what neighborhood he intends to move you? What place he intends to send you so that you and this person might meet? Who knows whom God is preparing this very hour so that you might bear witness like Philip did? Verse 39 says, After the baptism and when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away and the eunuch saw him no more and he went on his way rejoicing. Philip disappears. You know why? He's just a prop in the story. That's all he is. He's just a prop and now his part is over and the play goes on because this is about Jesus saving people. And he can use anyone for a moment and send them on their way. Philip disappears, and the Ethiopian man doesn't have Philip anymore. He doesn't have Philip in his chariot, but he has Jesus in his heart. And so now he goes on his way rejoicing. And can I tell you, in my mind, I would like to imagine that on this journey home, he opened the scroll and he kept reading. I'd like to imagine it's a thousand-mile journey. He's got to do something. I'd imagine he picked his Bible up again and kept reading. And if he did, can I tell you what I picture in my mind? That after Isaiah 53, he would have kept reading and he would have got to Isaiah 56. I mean, just three chapters later. I picture in my mind on that very journey, headed home to Africa, he kept reading and he got to Isaiah 56. And can you imagine what his soul did when he read in Isaiah 56 these words. Listen from verse 3. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. Right? No possibility of sons and daughters. I'm withered. No continuation of my life. Let not the eunuch say, behold, I'm a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs, who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that they shall not be cut off. Verse 7. These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Verse 8. The Lord God, who gathers the outcasts of Israel, declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. On his bumpy ride home, could you picture the eunuch reading in his scroll and getting to Isaiah 56? And having heard that Yahweh would send a suffering servant who would do this work of taking on the sins of the world, now he gets to Isaiah 56. And could you picture the eunuch reading that there was a promise from the prophet that the day was coming when foreigners, far away from Jerusalem, as far as what? Ethiopia. Foreigners and outcasts and people who had been excluded from the assembly of God say eunuchs that eunuchs themselves would be added to the Lord and the Lord would never separate them again from his people. And that eunuchs who couldn't have sons and daughters to carry on their name in the world, who were threatened to be wiped off, their name gone forever, the Lord is promising, I will give them an everlasting name that will never be cut off. And there'll be a monument for them and a name everlasting in my house, an eternal, permanent, secure place. They will never be cut off from my kingdom. And the prophet promising that one day God will make them joyful. And you hear Acts 8, 39 saying, and he went on his way rejoicing. And he went on his way rejoicing. This is why Jesus sent Philip there. And this is why Jesus intends to send us to the people and places he wants to send us. If we would just be ordinary Christians willing to obey him, willing to consider the great traveling distance, lengths Jesus went for us, that we might also go the lengths of our neighborhood and to the ends of the earth as well. Let me tell you how the story ends. It ends with simply this in verse 40. But Philip found himself at Azotus, And as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Philip has been plucked out of the desert and now placed on this path where he's going from town to town preaching until he gets to Caesarea. And at the end of chapter 8, Philip quite literally disappears. At the end of chapter 8, Philip disappears. And don't miss this. Acts 9 begins with Saul of Tarsus breathing threats, murderous rampage against Jesus and his church. And so here's Acts 8 and 9. Philip sandwiched right up against Saul of Tarsus. Saul of Tarsus, mind you, who is the one who killed Philip's good friend, Stephen, remember, they were one of the seven chosen together to wait on the table. So that means they had done ministry in the same church together. This was the man who had killed his friend, who hated Jesus and wanted to stamp out Christianity. And we will not see Philip again until Acts 21. And when we see Philip again in Acts 21, it'll be 20 years later. And he will have, it seems, settled down in Caesarea. And now a 20 years older Philip has four unmarried daughters. They're all prophetesses. Of course, what else would you expect from the kids of someone like Philip? And the next time you see Philip, he will be opening the front door of his house in Caesarea because he has a guest that's coming to stay for a few days. And do you know who the guest is? It's the same man that killed his friend Stephen. The next time we see Philip, it'll be 20 years later, and he'll be opening the front door of his house in Caesarea for Saul of Tarsus to come and stay, except now he greets him as Paul. And now he's not a foe. He's a friend, because Jesus did something unbelievable in Acts 9, and that's what we'll see next week. Let's pray together. God in heaven, we ask for grace to believe that the God who is powerful enough to orchestrate things like this then is still alive and well and doing it now. And that we ourselves would see ourselves as ordinary Christians who have a Bible in our hand and Jesus and the Holy Spirit in our hearts and that we would be sent to the people and places that you want that we might bear witness for Christ. We pray, O Lord, that there are people even now you are preparing for us to encounter if we would just open our mouths and tell them about Jesus. We pray, O Lord, that we would go out from this place and into this week as those who have been sent by Jesus to bear witness to him in all the places around us, even unto the ends of the earth. And we pray, even in this room, that you would draw every heart, those who know you and those who don't, to know that Jesus loves us all, yes, but Jesus loves me, that Jesus is seeking us all, yes, but Jesus is seeking me, and that every heart would be drawn to Christ today, for such is the global and individual love of Christ. Help us to drink this in today, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.